Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. So the year is 1935. The United States has somehow made it through a world war. They've made it through an economic depression that no one has ever seen before. And they've also made it through an agricultural dust bowl, something we sometimes forget about, that devastated a generation's crops and way of life and earnings. And... During this time, there was this guy who loved to hunt and be outdoors, but he saw the effects of overhunting, and he realized that he wouldn't be able to hunt as much each year because they, uh, the newspapers kept saying that there weren't enough to go around. So he came up with this simple idea. What if I developed a system where we would protect habitats, we'd control the breeding of wildlife, so that we could all, in the future, hunt as much as we want. And so he wrote a book about this, and voila, he had invented the study of wildlife management and had secured the populations for future hunting for many generations to come. But most importantly, a special chair was made for him at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, he got a job there where he would come up with his next idea. He and his wife and his five kids, they bought 80 acres of decrepit, desolate, essentially desert, depression-era farmland in the central sand counties of Baraboo, Wisconsin, for pocket change, essentially. So everyone, his wife included, thought he was nuts. But his idea was very simple. He said, what if I just, on the weekends from teaching at University of Wisconsin, I just go up there and I plant as many trees as I can, and then I just come back. So 40,000 white pine trees 
70 years and 520 more acres later, Aldo Leopold's vision of restoring beauty to desolate land had finally come to fruition. Instead of the sandy, rocky soil, birds were plucking juicy worms from rich soil, and instead of windswept mud fields, dense forests were housing all sorts of creatures, and flowers were blooming, the native prairie savanna plants were back, and bringing solidity to the ground again, topsoil once again, and creatures were chasing one another alongside the Wisconsin River, and kayakers were laughing and splashing each other with the sun beaming down. What seemed like an inescapable dark period in America's history was reversed, and Aldo and his family were on the ground, on the ground floor, enjoying it the whole time together. They were having heaven on earth. Now it's 2019, and we look back at Aldo and his story, his family, American history, and we say, let's a pipe dream. It's great for him that he was able to achieve his heart's desires, uh, achieve heaven on earth, but, you know, we can't go and buy 80 acres of land for 50 cents an acre. Today we live in a world that's more cutthroat. Today we live in a world that's more hectic. Today we live in a world that simply seems terrible. I did some research. It looks like in the last 20 years, there's been a 60% increase in productivity, but wages have actually stayed the same. So people are working harder for the same amount of money. Also, 44% of Americans feel more stressed than they did five years ago. One in five Americans actually experience extreme stress on a regular basis. So like shaking, heart palpitations, that kind of thing. There's been a 50% increase in strokes. There has been a 40% increase in overeating due to stress. And 44%, they credit their loss of sleep every night to the stress they experience. So it looks like stress is actually killing us. And what does our response to stress usually look like? Well, I'll tell you. The average American now consumes around 12 hours of media every day combined. So that takes into account multitasking with your media. So if you are looking at your phone while you're watching TV or scrolling through the internet, that that counts. We are escaping into fantasy worlds because anything from Harry Potter to Lord of the Rings to talk radio, anything is better than dwelling on stressful lives which we live today. But the costs of living, of leaving this world, and going to some other one, which might seem minor, a way to take your mind off things, actually adds up. So this article said, when you escape, instead of living in your world, you begin to alienate yourselves from your family and community. Because I can remember my freshman year roommate at St. Louis University, who started to get stressed because of the, I guess it's called separation anxiety, uh, from living on his own for the first time. And uh, he quickly started to recede into our dorm room and never come out with the lights off. He would only go to class and to eat. And he ended up reading all of the Game of Thrones books in a few weeks. So that's like 5,000 pages. Uh, 
He needed these fantasy worlds to escape to. But what that meant was he was no longer going with us to the dining hall. He was not playing ultimate frisbee with us. Essentially, he missed out on a bunch of friends and memories. You also stagnate your self-improvement, whether it be physical, spiritual, mental. Honestly, don't sit down and calculate how many hours of TV that you've watched and then compare it to how long it takes to learn a language or paint a painting or read a book or write a book. You'll probably torture yourself. So escapism is causing all sorts of mental disorders like anxiety and depression amongst our communities. We're looking at our social media highlight reels of other people's lives. We think that our lives stink, but everyone else's lives are great. It's called fear of missing out, which is the number one thing recorded in youth therapy sessions. But who can blame us? At the end of the day, Christians, us, right, we often feel like we're strangers living in a strange land. Like, we're not supposed to be of this world, so we try to escape it. But, let's be honest, escaping usually ends up looking like the Netflix binge. What this reminds me of is the situation the Hebrews found themselves in while they're in exile in Isaiah today. While there's not 100% equivalency, you know, all allegories fall short at some point, they were also strangers in a strange land. Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed along with the temple, very important place, by Nebuchadnezzar. And the faithful Judeans, they were all taken back with him to Babylon to live in, well, live according to his rules. And so he, would, he led them there in mockery. They were prisoners. They're stumbling through the desert and the desolate places. They were devoid of hope of ever seeing their promised land as it ever was again. And so as they lived in Babylon, their despair grew. They'd ask questions like, why go on living like this? They'd ask, what's the point? If we can't live like God commands us while we're living here, you know, offering up sacrifices, our traditional marriage customs, uh, eating the way we want, are we really even God's people anymore? So you then you start to ask yourself, how would you answer these questions as a faithful Hebrew father or mother to your kid? How would you answer these as a good older brother or sister? How would you answer these questions if your father asked you and you were a six-year-old? Well, when we hear the reading from Isaiah today, we hear about how they are currently adapting. They are living in this desolate, dry land. The stress of their daily lives and work are causing their hands to shake and their knees to wobble. It seems like there's no justice. No one is taking care of the deaf, the blind, the lame. They're ceasing to follow their customs. They're becoming unclean. They're no longer worthy of entering the temple, even if they had one. And they're not educating their youths, so Isaiah calls them foolish. And so they begin to, instead of binging Netflix or whatever, watching YouTube videos, they begin to binge listen to Isaiah and the Psalms. And God gives them a prophecy from Isaiah. He says, be strong, 
Fear not. Behold, your God will come back with a vengeance, with his payback for all that's happened to you. He will come and save you. This is the kind of language throughout the entire Hebrew chapter, to be honest. They're called justive or future promises or wills. So God is saying this will happen. God is saying that this is to occur. Just wait and see when it happens. This is how God differentiates himself himself in the Old Testament from false idols. He says something's going to happen, and then it happens. He's saying stop thinking about that temple and Jerusalem smoldering in ruins, the lush greenness and the trees that are the talk of Lebanon and Mount Carmel, they're going to be yours. Cute little flowers are going to start to grow in the desert. There's going to be rivers of water that gather into deep pools and bring the fruitful vegetation back and all the fat animals. And it's going to all point to, to the glory of Yahweh, the Father, just like he promised. All of a sudden it becomes messianic, as things can quickly happen in the Bible especially the Old Testament. He says that the blind are going to see. He says that the deaf are going to hear and the lame are going to walk. And this is what we read about the fulfillment of in today's gospel reading. God was going to come and save them in the flesh. He starts to tell them about a highway, one that's very different from like Highway 40 or something. So it's going to go through desolate lands, but mid-Missouri is not desolate. Places that are hilly, that are uneven, that are unlivable, it's going to go right through them. And what does that mean? So it means that it's going to go through, as it goes through the desolate places, it improves everything around it. And it's going to be the way of the Lord. It's the way built by him, for him, to him. No one unholy, foolish, dangerous can walk there as we read in Isaiah and so that's great and all but doesn't that mean that we can't walk on it if the Hebrews couldn't because they were becoming unholy foolish and dangerous people were in the ranks how can we walk on it well the relief is that we don't have to meet those requirements instead we have the Messiah who Yahweh promised And he's going to completely change us. Remember that God came to save us. He came to us. The gospel is that God does the building of this highway. We don't and cannot make the highway the way that he can. So when we sing prepare the royal highway this Advent, it's not us commanding one another to prepare the way for Jesus. It's thanking and praising God for preparing the way himself for us and himself. He comes Christmas Day. He lives a perfect life. He heals. He suffers. He dies. He rises. And he baptizes us and he makes us new. So now instead of prisoners or slaves in a slave train in this world, walking along being ashamed, we're now holy. We are the redeemed that Isaiah's prophecy talks about. God says that the unclean, the fools, the dangerous shall not walk on the way of the Lord, but that the redeemed shall walk there. In Christ, the ransomed of Yahweh shall return. That's the future promise from the Hebrew again. 
They shall return. Just wait until you see, because God said so. And just wait, just wait till it happens. So the Hebrews, they returned to Jerusalem, right? But this was now a new Jerusalem. The temple was not the same. Nothing was the same. They, all, they had to rebuild it all. But we don't have to rebuild Jerusalem. We don't have to rebuild our new Jerusalem. Instead, God will be bringing it to us. And he's going to lead us there. It's descending to us, the world recreated. Not trying to restore what was lost in Eden, but making it bigger and better than ever, making it new. So while we're waiting for the new Jerusalem to come to us, we are walking the royal highway right now. We aren't of this world, yeah. Instead, God is making our world better through his church, through us as we walk. We walk along his highway in the divine service. Heaven on earth, springs of everlasting water restoring the lushness of life in our desolate lands. The dream that Aldo and his family got to enjoy, but forever with the body of Christ. We return to God where he says that he'll be in the word and the sacraments, coming to Zion, singing with the liturgy, with everlasting joy in the Holy Spirit on our heads, obtaining gladness and joy in the Holy Supper, even though we were unclean, with sorrow and sighing fleeing away as we remember our baptisms. So, I read this cool book by Dr. Arthur Just of Concordia, Fort Wayne. It's called Heaven on Earth, and he says this about uh, worship. In worship, Christ is, is summoning us home to be with him when he invites us to sit and listen to his word with our ears. Come forward and receive his flesh with our mouths. Our eyes are opened when he invites us to the best seat at the table with the finest food. We come home to be with God in the Father's house. A foretaste of our final homecoming. Worship is our home our own unique culture, inhabited by Christ himself. When the benediction is spoken, the liturgy does not end. Our summons home in Christ has only begun. As we depart from the divine service, the gifts Christ has given us become the gifts he gives our neighbors through us. Mercy, love, compassion, and forgiveness. This is the liturgy of life. Nothing more and nothing less than his life in our lives because we bear his presence in our bodies. And so I ask of you today, escape not into movies, TVs, TV shows, online forums. Instead, escape into the reality that you are already living right now. You are living in the eschaton, in heaven on earth, but you don't always realize it. Let this hour right now in each Sunday, change you, change us in the way fundamentally that we think and act for the rest of the week. Allow the liturgies of our service here to be the liturgies of your life. Confession, absolution, forgiveness, communion, renewal of the body and mind, singing and praises, even in times of hardship. Behold, your God has come with a vengeance and has saved you. Amen.